We know pain because we're human. We know struggle because we're human. And at the end of the day, while we have to honor the differences, and I'm the first one to honor them, I also spend a lot of time thinking about how can I bring people together around whatever the issue is that I need us to come together around for a particular case. Hey, everybody, this is Jeremy Lynch and Landon Harlan from Obu Interactive. You are listening to the Cases for Causes podcast, the show that looks at legal marketing with a purpose. Today, we are speaking with Joe Freed from Freed Goldberg about all things truck accidents. Our guest is a pioneer in the field of truck accident litigation, spending the last 20 years investigating truck accident law. Joe has litigated cases in more than 35 states, giving him an unmatched perspective and is credited with developing many of the best practices used by lawyers nationally in truck accident investigation and truck accident litigation. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Joe, it's great to have you here. I have seen a number of your presentations where you teach other lawyers about how to handle a truck crash And one of the things I've always wanted to ask you about is from the client side. You know, they've gone through this this tragedy, this horrible experience. And now if they're at this place where they're ready to reach out and speak with a law firm, can you tell us a little bit about what the experience would be when they speak with someone like yourself or one of your attorneys? Well, it's a great question because it's, you know, when I first started doing this almost 20 years ago, there really wasn't such a thing as a truck crash lawyer. But one of the things that I've seen is that everybody is out there presenting themselves as this. Well, the the shocking thing for a lot of people is that lawyers are not just a commodity, that who your lawyer is makes a huge difference in how the case is going to be perceived and how it's going to, and, and what your ultimate result's going to be. And your experience in, in going through one of these tragedies is largely going to depend on who you choose as your counsel. So a lot of people have commented to me uh, when we've been speaking that it's apparent to them that I know what I'm talking about. It's apparent to them that I'm passionate about this space. It's apparent to them that I care about the result. And and that means more than just getting them the best monetary result. But can we do something that will affect highway safety using the facts, using the tragedy that's happened to them? I'm glad that comes out for people because it also happens to be my truth. I mean, this is what I do. I chose this area. It is my life. I mean, the legacy that I want to leave in individual cases is best result for the client, first and foremost, but then very closely on the heels of that to leave this world a better and safer place than I found it. And every one of my cases gives us an opportunity to do that. So that's the, that's a that's a very big differentiator. I like the way that you think that far forward too, as far as what can be done in terms of there has been a tragedy, a loss of a family member, to make sure that that person's legacy also goes somewhere for the community's benefit in terms of safety. In every one of our cases, we look for what I call non-monetary terms before we'll ever talk about monetary terms. So if we're, if we're at a point where we're going to look at potentially resolving a case, before we'll come to the table, we will define, and oftentimes this is because of a, conversations between myself and the clients, 
we'll come up with what is it that we would like to see changed. I'm more proud of those non-monetary terms than I am the monetary terms. And you know the results we've gotten have been exceptional around the country, but I'm much, much more proud of the fact that as a result of this work in collaboration with my clients, we're responsible for tens of thousands of trucks on the road now that have forward-facing and driver-facing cameras, that have forward collision mitigation and avoidance technology on board in the trucks, that have the kind of telematic systems that allow companies to real-time monitor their drivers' performance. And even now, we're starting to look at ways to monitor for fatigue and distraction because of advances in technology. So we do that first. And until we can get the other side to recognize that they can make a positive safety change, we just don't engage over potentially resolving cases. And so it's a powerful thing. And we've been doing it for long enough now to where people know this and they expect it of us when we're interacting with the defense. Not too long ago, you said to me when we were talking about how you worked with clients, you said, I try to meet my clients where they're at. After this tragic event has occurred, they're dealing with all the emotions. Some people still have physical injuries. And of course, you talked about the loss of a loved one. Can you explain to them what occurs after a major trucking company is involved in a collision. It's a severe collision. There has been an injury or there has been a death. And what occurs after that? Yeah, I hear two questions in that. First, I mean, what happens at the trucking company level when there's a significant crash? And it's important for people to understand that it's not like a car crash where somebody has to call the insurance company at some point down the road and report it and open a claim file. And that might be days or even weeks or sometimes even months after the crash. In these days, the trucks are sophisticated enough to where if somebody doesn't make an immediate phone call to the motor carrier, the truck itself will through the systems that it has. It will notify people immediately. And that starts, frankly, a well-oiled process And the process is one that is protective. So between the motor carrier and their insurers, they literally, I know this sounds dramatic to say it this way, but they literally have people available 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and and the extra day if it's a leap year. And they're ready to rock and roll any day, any time to go and get out to the scene and start to address the loss. And for them, you got to ask yourself, is it an exercise in finding the truth or is it an exercise in defending the assets of the company, whether the company is a motor carrier or an insurance company? Are they protecting themselves or are they seeking the truth? Sometimes those things aren't mutually exclusive, but if one of them has to take precedent over the other, which one do you think it's going to be if you're the insurance company? The problem is when our clients are in the back of an ambulance or on their way, God forbid, to a morgue and their families are grieving that and just finding out about it, the other side has a tremendous head start in being able to get moving. And they know what they're doing. They're very sophisticated. And oftentimes they'll have literally the lawyer who's going to be assigned to the case is required under the terms of the agreements with the with carriers to, have, to be present on the site within two hours of the wreck. 
But, you know, there's another thing that you asked, and that's like, what happens for our people after the wreck? You know, there's all kinds of papers that are written on grieving and the steps and the process and all those kind of things. What I found is that human beings, although a lot of us are alike in many ways, people go through trauma differently. People grieve differently. And to me, it's the ultimate in arrogance for me to pretend like I know exactly where they are. I take the time on the front end to just be there and just listen and just feel my way into the situation. And I try to approach from a place, I'm a lawyer, I'm a human being, happens to be a lawyer. It's not what some people think is going to happen where it's sort of the, you know, the person is in a cold and callous way interviewing just the facts, ma'am. I think it's so important and I think it is oftentimes missed that at the end of the day, we're dealing with tragedy. These are human tragedies and meeting people where they are first requires you to take time to assess where they really are. And too many of my brothers and sisters, I find, just make an assumption and they end up not being 100% right. I know that the firm on average each year takes about 95% of the cases you work on are trucking accidents, but I understand most of the cases also come from other lawyers. And you're mentioning the brothers and sisters in the practice of law, whether they do marketing for it or they don't. Can you explain how and why this has been something that's occurred in your career and for the firm? Yeah. So the, the, the question as I'm hearing it is, why do we get cases from other lawyers and so, and so frequently and with such regularity? And in fact, that's our, our whole model is built around the fact that, that we're kind of the lawyer's lawyer in this space. And I think the reason it happens is because of the way the system is set up right now, the legal system is set up where there are a lot of people marketing in a, in a myriad of ways number one. And number two, there are some people who just by happenstance, they happen to know somebody in the family of somebody who's gotten hurt. They may not even be a personal injury lawyer. A lot of our cases end up coming from somebody who once upon represented, once upon a time represented somebody in a family law matter or a criminal law matter, or even a business dispute. You know, what happens is the person who is the, the victim, the family who is the injured, the wrongfully killed, they have no idea who the hell to go to. And so what ends up happening is they go to a lawyer who they trust if they know one, or they go to a lawyer who they've seen marketing for, and they call them. And they and those lawyers, the service that they really provide to that person or family in that moment is to know who the right player is. Like, think about it as a doctor. Think about it if, God forbid, you or a family member had some rare condition, maybe it only happens four or 5,000 times uh, across the whole United States in a year. I'm not making that up because that's what traffic fatalities with, with commercial motor vehicles, that's the number of them every year. So it's a rare medical condition. You would go to the doctor you trust most, but you would want that doctor to say, you know what, let me tell you who the best specialist is. And if they don't know, they at least know how to go find out because they know somebody who knows somebody. That's how the cases come to us. Because for 20 years, and I'm very proud of this, not only led the process of learning and developing best practices, but then sharing them 
around the country with other lawyers, both formally by getting involved in their cases with them and informally by just participating in educational programs and organizations that teach lawyers. The bottom line is how the cases end up coming. They come because the people who are in the know or the people who know how to look for who are the people who are who are the, the right ones to carry the torch in a very sophisticated, big, messy truck crash case, they find us. And so we're not on billboards. We're not big you know, social media marketers and things along those lines. But those, those lawyers who are, they know who we are. And so they do a phenomenal service by getting people to us. And I'm very grateful for them for being willing to do that. And some of my best friends and some of my longest term relationships are those kinds of relationships that first started with a phone call saying, hey, are you the guy to represent my client in this terrible tragedy? And then team is formed around how do you build the best possible team for the case? And you go forward and you get the best result for the case. That's how it happens. And thankfully, this is also a well-oiled machine at this point. And we've, I'm proud of that because it's, it's one thing to go out and do good work. It's another thing for your peers all around the country to recognize that. And the best way they recognize it is by bringing you in and saying, will you team up with me uh, on this case? Because this is a really important client to me. And this is a really important case. And I want to make sure that I do the best job possible. And I want to build the best team. To illustrate some of that in-depth I believe you're the founder of the Academy of Truck Accident Attorneys or one of the founding members. I'm the co-founder along with a good friend of mine. We founded it together. And really, it was based on this concept that we've been talking about. The idea was to build a place where people who really wanted, lawyers who really wanted to learn the best practices could come to to learn, people who wanted to collaborate on cases and help advance the ball in this area could come together. And uh, we've built a community all across the United States, uh, well over a thousand lawyers now who communicate regularly. Uh, We help each other. We help each other's cases and clients. And it's truly a tremendous organization. I understand you have a commercial driver's license, so you've actually can drive a truck. Not well, not well, not well. (laughs) Not well. I went to truck driving school, and the best thing that came out of that is I can back a boat up really, really well now. But I'm joking. I'm joking. But what going to truck driving school does for a lawyer, uh, and I not only have been to truck driving school, but now I teach at a truck driving school, so I'm a trainer, is to give us a window into the very hard job, the very different job of driving a truck. It's not at all like driving a car. When I can take lawyers who think they understand what that means, and I can actually put them into the seat of a truck and have them try to back that sucker up, have them see how long it takes to complete a left turn, see how much gap they need to safely pull out of a driveway and not have somebody smack into them, to see what kind of clearance they need. All the things that a good truck driver has to pay attention to in order to be reasonably safe driving down the road, it's a game changer. They leave with more respect for what the difficulty of the job, but they also leave much better prepared to not get the wool pulled over their eyes by somebody who's trying to pull the wool over their eyes. 
I promise you, you go sit in the seat, experience the world from sitting that many feet off the ground in something that big, it's a game changer for how you're going to look at the world from that point forward. I feel like a lot of people don't understand the difference between what is a Ford F-150 versus your Kia SUV type of car accident. Can you give us some examples that would be significant differences that you more commonly see in a car on truck accident? Yeah, it's really a great question because it's funny. You said you started out by saying, you know, people don't, is it true almost like that people don't realize these differences? It's true and people don't realize that they don't realize the differences because we all drive. So what do you mean it's so different to make a left turn in a tractor trailer? Well, the only frame of reference you've got is you've made a bunch of left turns starting on your bicycle, on your scooter. And then, you know, as you got your license, your first car, you started making left turns. How can it be that different? Well, let me tell you, it's hugely different. You know, so what are some of those differences? Well, the obvious thing is you're dealing with something huge, comparatively huge. So size and weight, center of gravity, hugely different. Trucks, the ones that are tractor trailers, they're called articulating vehicles. They're made to bend, not in the middle, but they bend at what's called the fifth wheel. Our cars aren't supposed to do that, but that changes the whole dynamic and how those vehicles handle on the roadway. It takes much, much longer to do anything safely in a truck, to accelerate up to speed, to decelerate or brake, to change lanes, to make a left turn to make a right turn, you name it, it takes longer to do. And that changes everything about how you should safely drive a truck because you've got to have bigger gaps. You've got to be paying attention further out so that you can avoid crashes and avoid, I mean, here's something people don't know. We see trucks illegally parked on the side of the highway all the time. They're not supposed to be there. That's not their parking ground. And what it tells me as an experienced truck lawyer is that's a driver who didn't who failed way back before they started driving that day there's a concept called route planning where you're supposed to already know where you're going to stop you're supposed to already plan for where you're going to stop so that you don't end up illegally parked on the side of the road taking up valuable real estate there when it comes from a safety perspective you're supposed to know where you're going to stop to get fuel where you're going to stop for the night where you're going to stop to get food because driving a truck is not like driving a car. You can't just whip it over to the side of the road when you want to. It's very different. The, think of the difference in, in bumper heights between the front of a tractor trailer and a regular car or even an SUV that's as tall an SUV as you've ever seen. The mismatch in those bumper heights causes all kinds of weird things to happen from a physics perspective when you get in a crash the center of gravity and everything else. And I don't want to get too technical, but understanding these things requires a study of them. And it requires differentiating what happens in a car to car situation versus in a car to truck situation. So how these big giant animals interact with the rest of us on the roadway, you can make a study of it. And that's what I have done. So that's when we talk about looking at best practices a lot of what we're doing is we're analyzing what are safe drivers trained to do and why. Understanding the why behind it is critically important, and it has to do with some of these differences. 
And one of the differences that is interesting, because I know you've handled cases, the firm's handled cases in at least 40 states. Is that correct? Yeah, I think I'm up to 43 states. Somebody counted the other day for me. I haven't independently verified that, but I think it's 43. All right. Well, we can go with 43. That would lead me to believe that you've handled these types of cases involving all different types of weather, road conditions, traffic conditions, things that vary from state to state. Can you explain to us how some of those types of cases in other states have helped hone your skills and hone your team skills based on whatever conditions may have applied during that collision? Wow, there's so many ways I can answer that question because one of the things that it makes me think of is every place you go has its own little personality. So the people there are important. And it would be foolish if you're a lawyer and you're going to ultimately potentially be in front of a jury, not to first lead with that, to say, who's going to ultimately be my audience of the people who are going to judge the conduct in this case, both the conduct of the truck driver and the conduct of my client and and the conduct of the doctors and everybody involved in this. So who are the people involved? And practicing all over the place has given me this amazing perch to feel my way into a community a little bit. I don't pretend to be a part of that community because I'm not, but I try very hard to understand what's important in that community. So that's not really the question you asked me, but it's my immediate feeling as a lawyer, ultimately never forget your audience. It's also given me a perch into being able to discover around the country who are the absolute best experts for various types of cases. And if you're going to handle a case in the Northeast having to, or in the West, like Montana and Wyoming, that involves bad weather, you probably best not use your favorite expert from Florida, right? Because the mismatch is just automatically there. Even though that Florida person may have driven once upon a time over a mountain, you know, there are no mountains in Florida. So there's lots of ways to answer your question in terms of what we see. And then it's also very, very important to recognize where all the similarities are. What I'm trying to do in answering your question is honor the differences from place to place, but also remember that at the end of the day, We are human beings. The truck driver is a human being. The jurors are human beings. My clients are human beings. And there are some very basic human truths that we should never, ever, ever forget as attorneys and as just people interacting with each other. And so for me, it doesn't matter if a place is conservative or liberal or what the racial makeup is or gender identity makeup is or all those things. Those are focusing on all the ways we're different. I don't care what the color of your skin is. A mother's tears over the death of their child, they're the same salty tears. It doesn't matter what their gender identity is. If it hurts, it freaking hurts. We know pain because we're human. We know struggle because we're human. And at the end of the day, while we have to honor the differences, and I'm the first one to honor them, I also spend a lot of time thinking about how can I bring people together around whatever the issue is that I need us to come together around for a particular case. I hope I'm communicating that in a way that is respectful to everybody because I don't want people to feel not heard in that process. But my job really, I have to win my case 
regardless of where I happen to end up being. One more thing about being a lawyer who's practiced in so many places is most trucking cases, you have more than one place that you can bring the case. There's a concept in law called jurisdiction and venue. And so there are different ways to get a case into different courts. For many lawyers, because they practice in one location, that's their home base. That's where they know the judges. That's where they know the process. And they're going to force the case into that jurisdiction, if at all possible. For us, and I say us, my whole firm, we look and analyze where is the best potential venue, even if it requires an airplane for us to get there. And we're going to bring the case in that location. And let me put a big, giant, double exclamation point. For people in the know, they will admit to you that where you bring that case, it can be exponential in terms of the results. In one place where you would get the result X, in some other places, it would literally be four or five X. That much difference. So it's not a little distinction that we're talking about. Potentially huge. These trucks cross many state lines. And when you're considering jurisdiction, I was wondering, do you consider maybe a mistake they made in another state, whether it was when they got gas or when they were checking tire pressure in some other state, the accident occurred several states away. Does that factor into where you try to decide on where the jurisdiction is going to fall? It can. And that's a very intuitive question. And yes, it can, because I mean, a lot of times our job is to find the best venue, because if you end up with a tragedy and it ends up being in a place that's notoriously bad for getting justice, or in some cases, there are some cases where if you bring certain types of cases, especially wrongful death cases, in some places, real, there's just no recovery because the law says if you don't have a, a child and you don't, ha- you don't have a living child and you don't have a living parent and you're not married, there's nobody to collect for you. Well, if you bring a wrongful death case there, you're not, good luck. You may have the best case in the world, but you got the worst case in the world. So making the decision requires assessing not only where the bad conduct might have occurred, but then within each state, what are the laws in that state? Because every state's a little bit different when it comes to what you're allowed to recover for and who's allowed to recover and under what circumstances they're allowed to recover. Sometimes we'll have a choice of six or seven different locations that we literally, I mean, part of the assignment here is I have somebody look at every one of those venues and assess. And then once we figure out what's best, then the next piece is, okay, now how do we get there? How do we stay there and not get kicked out of that venue? And that goes to a lot of what you said. Can I find some bootstrap? Can I find the last stop was in such and such a state? They were supposed to do an inspection. If they had done it, dot, 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 the presumption is that they were negligent for not doing it. Well, that part of that message, too, that in case there's an attorney or if there's a lawyer listening as well, and they do have that mother's tears, like you said, that very much resonates, that comes into their office, it's important for them to understand some of these elements that they don't likely deal with or, or hear that much on a day-to-day basis when it could involve a major trucking company who you've gone up against before. And you know some of the dirty tricks they may pull on you to try and leverage their side. For a lawyer, the question that I wanted to ask is, you have this lawyer that's ambitious, they want to handle the case. 
Can you give us an idea of the difference between a situation where the case is referred to you and a case where you've been asked to be co-counsel? Yeah, there is a difference, and it's a spectrum. The spectrum runs from, on one hand, I have a client, I want to hand them off to you, and I want you to just let me know when the case is over. I mean, it can literally be that where the value that they have brought to the case is by putting together the client and case with whoever they believe the best lawyer is to handle that. They don't want involvement. And then- And there's nothing wrong with that. There's, there's nothing wrong with that as long as you stay within the rules of ethics and how that, that works. And different states have different rules about how that can work. And so you do have to be cognizant on behalf of everybody that nobody runs afoul of the rules of that. But yeah, we, we have situations like that all the time where the nature of the relationship is we don't have a big expectation of the other lawyer doing a whole lot more than getting us the case and maybe staying involved just to oversee things, so to speak. But it ranges from that all the way to what I would call really a true partnership. And it can happen for a couple of reasons. One common one for me is because at this point, you know, I'm looked at in a certain way in this world, in this trucking world, a lot of lawyers want to learn from us in the way we do things. I mean that in the broadest sense, from the strategy of things to how we technically go about doing things. And so they want to be a part of that. They want to be along for the ride. There are also lots of times when lawyers who really, they're very fine lawyers. I mean, some of the best lawyers around the United States have associated me into their case to handle certain aspects of trucking cases. They're fine. In some ways, they may be better lawyers than me in terms of certain aspects of things. But these days, if you think about it, think about it. Let's flip it for a second. And let's say you're a big giant trucking company. You already have a really good lawyer, but you also learn that there's another person who you feel could really add tremendously to your team and make you that much more effective in a particular case. Do you think for a minute that the big giant companies are not going to reach out and grab that other lawyer? They're going to pull them in, be a part of a team. And so the biggest companies in the world, that's how they operate. They build a team. So I'm a big advocate in building a team. I'm not the best at everything. I don't pretend to be the best at everything. In fact, I'm, I think I'm the best at very, very little. What I'm the best at, I'm the best at. But then outside of that, in my perfect world, I'm going to bring people in who are really, really good at these other aspects of the case. And so one of the pleasures of the way my firm is set up is that we get that full spectrum where we get occasionally people calling us directly, more sophisticated clients who know how to look for who's best or who is at the top of the field. It's not easy. There's so much noise out there on the internet. It's hard to know who really are the better ones, but every now and then we get them direct. But more commonly, it's this spectrum from, hey, we know who you are. We want you to take the case and run with it to we want to be right beside you all the way up sometimes through the trial of the case and even into the appeals. But it's enjoyable to be able to do that. It's outstanding. Giving people an opportunity to learn. Let me add this real quickly, just a point to add to that. In those situations, if I'm approaching those situations right, even though I'm being brought in to be the teacher, guess who learns? I do. One of my points that I like to tell all of the people I work with is 
we all need to be eyes wide open to how we can learn to be best. And sometimes we learn it from the most unexpected sources. So, Joe, why should a lawyer who has a serious truck case consider co-counseling with your firm? It's a great question. I think there's a few reasons. One is this is all we do. So in terms of the learning curve, in terms of running into issues that we're not going to know how to deal with, the chances of that are pretty slim at this point. We've been doing this and doing it very successfully at the top of the heap, so to speak, for almost 20 years. We've developed amazing relationships on both sides of of the V, as they say. So the other side knows who we are. So frankly, we get treated differently in these cases than many other people do. We know what to look for. We know what to not waste time on and money on. And at the end of the day, one of the things I'm very proud of is when we build a team around a referral or around a co-counsel arrangement, we are very open to looking at where the strengths and weaknesses are of the various players who are going to be involved. And we build the team accordingly. And so if another firm has a close relationship with the client, or they have a close relationship with the court, or they have a close relationship with something, or they have experience with certain doctors or whatever, we're not just going to come in and roughshod over them. We're going to come in and include them in the process. We also have other firms who say, you know, we don't want that. We want you to take over everything. That's okay too. We know how to do it. But the idea is that we're not a high volume practice. So we have the ability to sit with a potential referral or co-counsel and say, what's best for this case? And at the end of the day, what I need to be able to do to justify this for the person who's thinking about it is I need to be able to look at them and say, we're going to make a big enough difference in this case for the client and even for you as referring counsel or co-counsel to make it worth everybody's while to be involved. Because it doesn't make sense if I can't really up the end result. And that end result is monetary and non-monetary in terms of leaving the client feeling, appropriately feeling, that we have made a difference with the case. So it's a lot of factors that go in. We could take a long time to talk about this, but at the end of the day, we're good team players. We're going to make you look good for bringing us in. We're going to use the, whatever strengths you bring to the table and cover any weaknesses that you have. We've got the finances to go up against anybody. We've got the know-how to go up against anybody. And we've been up against most of them at this point. They know who we are and we get good results consistently. So at the end of the day, we end up with happy clients. And I can't tell you how many millions of referral dollars and co-counsel dollars we've sent out, but it's been a lot. And generally, the relationships are not one-off relationships. What ends up being the beginning of lifelong relationships. And that's what I'm probably more proud of than anything. Absolutely. I'm going to go ahead and ask this question as if I I was a lawyer and considering referring a case to you. What are the typical arrangements? Because I feel like people would want to know. Well, I'm going to give you the typical lawyer answer. It depends. The reality is we are a low volume firm and we have to protect ourselves in terms of what we get involved in. 
at the same time, there's a range and it's going to depend if you're coming to us and we look at it at case and we say, okay, look, that's a, it's a huge case in terms of it's tens of millions of dollars case. There's going to be a different potential referral arrangement or co-counsel arrangement than if it's a case and it's maybe a half a million dollar case because we have to be careful about what we're getting involved in. But the range typically for us is somewhere between a 20 to 25% sort of pure referral arrangement to a 50% where things are 50-50. The things that differentiate that are what's the work that's going to go in? Where's the case? What's the probable size of the case? What are the risks in the case? How much money is going to have to be spent on the case? And is that our money or is it going to be shared money with the referral counsel? All of those things matter. In a traditional, very, very large case, we end up doing those cases. It's usually either a 50-50 relationship where there's a joint responsibility for things. Sometimes there's 60-40 relationships in our favor, and sometimes it changes. But what people can always count on is an honest and open dialogue about it on the front end with a promise, that commitment, that at the end of the day, it's going to be fairly handled. And so things sometimes change through a case. And we try to anticipate all that on the front end. But it's also important, and anybody who's been in this field long enough knows, that sometimes things do change over time. And fairness requires there being adjusting of things. And so we're always looking to make sure that the relationship is fair. That's the reason why we don't have one-hit wonder relationships. I mean, our relationships span years and years, and in some cases, decades and decades, where we've done many cases with firms over and over again. We wouldn't be that if it wasn't for the commitment to being fair and the commitment to getting great results. That does help. That does help. Well, I think that makes sense and would put a lot of people at ease, especially if you know they do have partners or they you know they're on the come up they've had some good good results they're getting confident in themselves but this could be an opportunity to even learn more about a very specific area that you've have focused in for quite some time again i'm governed in looking at whether i should get involved in a case and what the arrangement should be i'm governed by the question of what difference can we make in the case and so circumstances can be all over the place from relationships to locations to who the motor carrier is, who the insurers are, and what our track record is with them. But if I can't make a big enough difference in the case to make it worthwhile for the person who's bringing me in, then I'm going to be the first person to say, you don't need me. Let me help you on the sidelines. And people who know me know that I spend probably a third of my life helping other lawyers with cases that I have no financial interest in. I have a staff of people who spend considerable portions of their existence just responding to questions and requests for information and requests for materials because it's the right thing for us to do. So Joe, let me follow up with that from a client standpoint. How should I feel if I'm the client hearing from their lawyer who I've chosen to entrust my case to and I get a phone call one afternoon and I hear that Free Goldberg, a firm I haven't heard of before, is coming into the case. And can you tell me how that would be a good thing for me to hear? I hope that a client would look at that initially with some degree of, 
wait a minute, what's going on here? Is this a bait and switch? I mean, what's happening here? Right. And is this good for me? And is it going to cost me more money? And is there going to be double attorney fees? And how does this work? So it's a great question. Knowing what I know, if I was a client, I would be tickled pink that my lawyer cares enough about the outcome of my case to assemble who that lawyer believes is the best team to bring about the best result. So how do how should I feel about my lawyer at that point? I would feel great. I would feel like my lawyer cares enough about me to give up what's going to end up being a significant portion of their fee in order to bring in somebody who they feel is going to dramatically help in the outcome of the case. What I also feel good about is that lawyer should be telling me as the client that it is not going to cost me any more money in terms of fees and expenses to have Free Goldberg involved than if Free Goldberg wasn't involved. And in other words, the fee that's already agreed to as part of the contract, that co-counsel and Free Goldberg is going to agree to split that. And we're going to agree to split the work and we're going to agree to split the expenses and we're going to agree to split the fees. So the truth is for that client, it's not going to cost them any more money. They're getting the benefit of having a nationally renowned firm. And I can't really, I feel like I'm bragging saying it this way, but I can't overemphasize the importance of that. In this world that we're talking about, the lawyer you have makes a huge difference in how much attention your case is going to get and how seriously your case is going to be taken. And at the end of the day, when it comes to resolution, whether that's in the form of a settlement and getting to that point and having the other side even want to settle versus getting to a trial and what that looks like and what the end result is at a trial, one of the biggest factors is who's your lawyer. It, maybe it shouldn't be that way, but it is. So short answer to the question is, if Free Goldberg is getting involved in the case, we have made a study of the case. We believe that we can make a big enough difference in being involved in the case to make it worth everybody's while, including ours and certainly the clients. If we can't do that, thankfully, we're offered cases every single day. We don't take cases every day. We take very few. The value of that case is going up if we're involved. And that's just, that's not me trying to be braggadocious. That's just what the track record demonstrates. And it's the reason why lawyers who are in the know, even really, really fine lawyers who are in the know, bring their cases to us uh, to get involved. I mean, and you talked about efficiency, knowing which experts to hire, how to save money and where to do your investigations. There's numerous benefits, not just in the increase of value, but also potentially a decrease in some costs. And that's a benefit to the client. It's a great point it's on both sides of that. It's an increase in the end result. What the client should be most concerned about at the end of the day is what's going in their pocket on the financial side and what difference were we able to make with the case. Because in my experience, it's very important to my clients, almost invariably. They want to know that they didn't go through what their family just went through and nothing changed. And right. all they got is a paycheck at the end of the day. The paycheck's important because it's making up for something. It, we've defined justice a little bit that way, but they want to know that the trucking company has made a change 
And I could give you lots of examples of changes that trucking companies have made in the cases that we've been involved in. So Joe, here's a question for you that I think is something that a lot of listeners would be interested in. Can you give us some examples in the past 10 years of safety and highway trucking regulations that have changed based on the result of litigations you've been involved in? And then what do you hope to see in the next 10 years when it comes to safety technology in terms of trucking litigation and truck driving? Yeah. So for first, if I back up even more than 10 years ago, one of the things that got me into trucking litigation was a recognition that technology back then, there was all this technology on the logistics side. So they could tell you when your package would arrive, but they couldn't tell you that the driver was driving like an idiot and violating all the regulations. And that didn't make any sense to me. So part of my initial thrust for getting into this field was I thought, if I could just close that gap a little bit, that would make a difference in safety. If we could ha stop having safety buried their head in the sand, data's already there and they're not using it. And it was bothering me that that was the case. So what I've seen happen is I've seen that gap close. It's taken more than 10 years, but now we're closer to 20 years. But I've seen a number of things happen in that regard with the probably the biggest and most important thing is a movement toward electronic logging devices. And those are designed so that when the truck moves, the device inside the truck knows that it's moving. So some of the gamesmanship, and I'm being careful to say some of the gamesmanship that used to happen with double sets of logs and what would be done to try to avoid the hours of service regulations, it's harder to do now because the truck knows when it's moving and the gamesmanship is easier to detect. As a result, that technology has resulted in much more sort of what I'll say safety add-ons to that. So now those systems are, a lot of them with increasing regularity, are able to report back to the motor carrier or to a third-party service whenever the driver is driving poorly, when there's certain predefined things that happen like for instance, hard brake events, which may suggest that somebody's following too close, or speeding events, because now we have technology where the truck system not only knows how fast the truck is going, but it knows what the speed limit is on the road. So there's the ability to really now have systems that are almost like there's a manager sitting inside the truck. We've seen the movement toward more and more motor carriers using not only forward-facing camera systems so that we know what happened. So that telematic system, it kicks off and it says, oh, there was a hard brake event. And now someone can actually look at the camera and say, oh yeah, well, here a car cut in front of this driver. So he had to do that versus this guy was following too close and he had to do it because of that. So we have much better ability to manage the conduct of drivers because of that. You also have now driver-facing cameras and more and more increasingly. So now add to the picture that same situation. Now we know at that moment, was the driver on their cell phone? Was the driver paying attention? Was the driver taking a sip of the big gulp? Was the driver looking like they were falling asleep? Any of those kinds of things. Now where that goes from here, there's other technologies that have also been huge. A huge part of my focus 
has been to encourage through litigation and regulation and just safety programming and talking to encourage companies to adopt forward collision mitigation and avoidance technology. Think of that as automatic emergency braking and the warnings that can be given to drivers either audibly or heptically, I think is the way you say it, where they can feel something, their seat will vibrate or something along those lines to warn of an upcoming danger that a system sees, but for whatever reason, the driver's not seeing it. So those are what's increasing. And uh, we've seen it increase a lot. It's kind of exponential. We're seeing more and more starting to get onto a really good tack. And what we see moving forward from here is, A, the, this advancement in terms of the number of motor carriers who are using this technology, but also the technology is getting better and better. So now we have some of these technologies are starting, and certainly within the next 10 years, we'll have it perfected, where these cameras will be able to know if somebody is using their cell phone and make alarms go off. And I'm talking about inappropriately using their cell phone or acting in a distracted manner or acting in a fatigued manner. There's literally technology now that watches and monitors the eye movement of drivers as they're driving down the road. There's technology called smart speed limiters that are being worked on right now, where it used to be that if you didn't want a truck to go over 65 miles an hour, you could set a setting. It was called a governor. And the truck under no circumstances could go more than 65. Well, there's a lot of times you don't want the truck going 65, but historically you didn't have the technology to change that. Now we have smart devices that can know not only the speed limit on the roadway, but imagine if we also know the weather conditions. Imagine if we also know the traffic conditions. And in a smart way, the truck's governor would adjust down and say, I don't want you going over 45 in this area. You know what? It's so bad. You better not be going over 25 in this area. And we can now do this in a smarter and smarter way. And so there's lots that's going on. And I think that it's one of those exciting times for me that I think we see all over the place, right? With all this smart stuff that's happening and chat GPT and you know everything that's happening in all the different areas. And it seems like I've heard a statistic that says in the next three years, we will advance more technology-wise than we have in the last something like 20 years, because it's an exponential thing. We we're able to do more, quicker, faster. And I'm hoping that that continues to translate into better and better things for trucking. And what I'm actually leading toward is the need to have fewer and fewer regulations, not more and more regulations, because technology will step into that gap. And instead of like now, we try to tell people don't drive more than, you can't drive more than 10 hours and you have to take time off. Well, We can tell them to take time off all day long, but we can't stop them from sitting up all day and playing video games all night and then getting back in the truck. So we have no idea if they're actually tired or rested or whatever. Well, what if the truck gets smart enough to where if the driver is tired and doesn't see the people stopping ahead, the truck goes ahead and stops for you? That's better to me than having a regulation that actually costs a lot of money to try to regulate And the people who are the biggest violators of it just continue to violate it anyway. So we're a lot better off having the safety technology. And I'm excited to see things moving toward it. It's something I'm staying very on top of. And it's something that we use each lawsuit to look for an opportunity at the end of that suit 
to see if we can encourage the at-fault trucking company to adopt more and more of this kind of technology. And that's our way of trying to push it forward. It's also at some point going to become, I want it to become more expensive from a litigation perspective for companies not to be adopting this technology than adopting it. Some people would take offense to what I just said, and I welcome your offense. Sounds like uh, smarter trucks, safer roads. That's all a good thing for the future. Yeah. Smarter trucks that situationally are smarter so that they really assist drivers in the moments. I mean, imagine how hard it is to be a driver, to stay attentive for 10 hours driving a big, huge truck. I mean, doesn't it make you tired just thinking about it? I mean, I get right. tired driving my car for 10 hours. And imagine that. That's very, very hard to do, to maintain constant awareness and constant vigilance in that process. And it's really not fair to expect that. We're human beings, but we now have the technology to address it. To me, it's like criminal not to. We need to be pushing this. We need to advance it. And once drivers hear me talk about it, sometimes they're offended. Like, I don't need a, I don't need a device to hit my brakes for me. I'm a professional truck driver. But then, God forbid, they're in one of these crashes and I'm sitting across from them and they come to the realization that if the truck had that, they wouldn't now be looking at potentially being looked at being responsible for taking out a family of four or putting somebody in a wheelchair for the rest of their life or brain injuring them. Imagine the weight of that for a driver to know that they have to go with that and it destroys their career and it destroys their mental health when one piece of technology that really at the end of the day wasn't even all that expensive could have avoided it. That's the world I want to see. I want to get to that point. I want to thank Joe for joining us today. It was a pleasure having him on the podcast. And to all the listeners out there who may have been affected or had a family member affected by a truck accident and want to find out more about Joe Freed and the Freed Goldberg Law Firm, you can visit freedgoldberg.com. On Facebook, you can go to facebook.com slash freedgoldbergllc, or you can follow them on Twitter at truckingattys. I want to thank all of you out there for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Cases for Causes and you'd like to help support the podcast, please smash the subscribe button, share the episode with others, post about it on social media, and always leave us a rating or a review. To catch all the latest from Obu Interactive, you can follow us on Instagram at Obu Interactive or visit us at obuinteractive.com. Thanks again. And until next time, work passionately, live peacefully.